0: Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to find the home base for Open Your Eyes, go to OpenYourEyes.org to find your podcast channel and then subscribe to that so you get automatic episodes as they're released each Monday. And don't forget to share this episode with a friend. That helps to spread the word about the good things that are happening here. So let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about the key characteristic of almost all successful people and leaders. They're twice born. Hurricane Katrina was one of the most costly and one of the five most deadliest hurricanes in U.S. history. On August 26, 2005, Katrina entered the Gulf of Mexico, and there, over the warm, shallow waters... It gained strength, reaching Category 5 status with 140 mile-an-hour winds. When it came ashore three days later, more powerful than the winds, Katrina brought rain, and lots of it. In some parts of Louisiana, it immediately dumped 15 inches of rain. Now, this heavy surge of rain resulted in over 50 breaches of the levee system, and 80% of the city of New Orleans and surrounding areas were flooded. 1,826 people died in the storm, with 135 people still missing. Most of the major roads in and out of New Orleans were damaged, making travel almost impossible. Portions of the I-10 bridge had collapsed, and the Superdome was damaged. And in its pitiful state, the Superdome became a gathering place for the homeless, and thousands assembled there, and it was opened as a humanitarian center. But the first number of days, it was nothing like a center. With no running water, no functioning toilets, food, or other provisions, it became a symbol of the broken system, leaving a stain on the city and the spirit of New Orleans you may remember the horrible pictures of dead bodies left in the shadows of the superdome hour after hour news stations broadcast the conditions from the superdome while roads to the superdome were impassable beyond reach of the food and supplies so desperately needed. And if you lived in new Orleans, it was tough to have any hope about anything. Everything about the city was broken. Now, I don't know about you, But I think it's easy at times for all of us to lose hope. When you don't see how your child can overcome a challenge, when you don't see a way to make things work in your circumstances, it's easy to feel beaten down by the storms of life, isn't it? Discouraged, wondering if you can rebuild what you once had. Now, when the needed relief came to New Orleans and the rebuilding began, there still was little hope. The city was crippled. And for months, there was just clearing of debris and mourning the loss. The spirit that made New Orleans the Crescent City was all but gone. Even the football team, the New Orleans Saints, were rumored to be leaving for a drier, more profitable city. And the Superdome was uninhabitable, so no games could be played in the Superdome the following year. In fact, after the press it had received, the Superdome wasn't a popular place. But all of that changed on one day. The first home game of the New Orleans Saints 21 months after Katrina in the rebuilt Superdome. Now, in the first quarter, with no score on the board by the Saints, the offense had sputtered. It was as if the Saints, like New Orleans, just couldn't get a break. Then, one play. Undrafted free agent and special teams wild man Steve Gleason broke through the line and blocked a punt by the Atlanta Falcons. The ball was recovered and taken into the end zone by the Saints for their first touchdown at home in the new Superdome. At that moment, it was like a massive surge of energy shot through the entire city, a sign, a clear signal that the Saints can win, that the city will win. For over a minute, the announcers stayed quiet. There was no music over the loudspeakers. The fans just cheered. It was as if they were letting out a cheer for every house rebuilt, every day of discouragement that they had, in fact, overcome finally. And from that point on, that season, the saints and the citizens were unstoppable. That day, they beat the Falcons 23-3. to Now, watching in the stands that day was a young boy named Michael Mouty. He grew up in New Orleans. He lived through Katrina and dreamed of playing someday for the saints. And little did he know, later in life, he would get his chance. But despite all the wonderful things that happened following that game, God had other plans for the player who blocked the punt, Steve Gleason. Just years after his block and retiring from football, Steve would be diagnosed with ALS. ALS attacks the nervous system, leaving muscles unresponsive. And Steve's body slowly deteriorated. In his state in his wheelchair, Steve returned to the Superdome a little over 10 years since his famous blocked punt, this time as an honorary captain. On the sidelines in his wheelchair, unable to move on his own, he was given a special gift, a reminder that he was not battling alone. On that day in the Superdome against the same Atlanta Falcons, as Steve watched from the sidelines. Little Michael Mouty, that boy in the stands, was now a linebacker for the Saints. And he broke through the line and blocked a falcon punt, which was recovered in the end zone for a touchdown, giving the Saints a victory over the Falcons. Now, I don't think it was an accident that Michael blocked a punt for a touchdown on the day that Steve was back in the Superdome. It was as if God was saying to Steve and to New Orleans, I am aware, and I love irony. It was as if heaven was saying, you may be down, but there is a rebirth. And on July 2012, a statue depicting Gleason blocking the punt was raised outside the Superdome. And the name of that statue? Rebirth. There is immense power in rebirth. When you attempt and possibly fail, and then decide to repeat or revive or improve and start again, there is immense power. You see, New Orleans was better the second time around. They knew more of who they were as a city. They valued the Superdome more. They valued the saints more. They valued each other more. And the same goes for any type of endeavor. The second time, when you have to decide again, when you persevere and rebuild, you value, you learn better. For example, I've seen many people learn through divorce. They are better the second time around. They value relationships. They make better decisions. And they are not perfect, but the second time around is empowering. Years ago, Warren Bennis and Robert Thomas studied a collection of leaders in a variety of industries and types of endeavors. Men Women, in business, in sports, in the arts, it didn't matter. All of these successful leaders that they studied had one thing in common. They were twice born. It means that somewhere along the line, they had paused or been challenged and had to decide to recommit, to reengage, and do again. You know, one of the best things about being a grandparent, for example, is watching your children experience parenthood for the first time. You get to relive the experiences you had as a rookie parent, and you get to chuckle inside when you hear your children overreact to how their children are behaving. Grandparents are much more relaxed the second time around. The second time around gives you perspective. It gives you strength. It awakens your mind to the challenge. Of course, the first time around is the toughest. You don't know what to expect. You can't see the end from the beginning. It's like your first time on a racetrack. You experience the slope of the turns, hit the bumps in the road, and wonder whether you can drive close to the guardrail. But the second time around is much easier. You've driven the track before. You can anticipate the hazards, and you know when to put the pedal down and when just to let it ride. You know what you're dealing with. It reminds me of the story of a church congregation. One bright, beautiful Sunday morning, people in the town of Mainville were gathered at the local church waiting for the service to begin. Everyone was seated in their seats, visiting with each other, when suddenly the roof blew apart and a thunderous explosion was heard, and the devil himself appeared above the pulpit. Everyone started screaming and running and trampling each other in an effort to escape Satan's wrath, and soon everyone had left the chapel, but one woman who sat calmly on the front pew, seemingly oblivious to the fact the devil had arrived. And this confused Satan, and he asked the woman, do you know who I am? Yes, the lady replied, I do. Aren't you afraid of me? The devil bellowed. Why should I be? The woman replied, I've been married to your brother for over 43 years. Twice around people know what they're dealing with. And twice around parents see the end from the beginning. That's why being the youngest child can often be a much easier ride than being the oldest. You see, the youngest child gets a more mature parent who's been buffeted and bumped around by the older children. And twice around parents trust in the child's ability to choose. They know choice enables them to develop long-term skills. The second time around, you see how making mistakes can help children learn important lessons in life, and you're not running in to save them at every trip or stumble. Most of all, twice-round parents are more likely to get down on the floor and play. They smile more. They hang out. And it's when you're just hanging out without an agenda that you really bond with kids. And for some reason, first-round parents are too uptight, too worried at times about appearances. But twice-round parents care more about what's on the inside than the outside. Perhaps twice-round parents are better because they see the days of parenting are growing shorter. Twice-round leaders, like twice-round parents, are patient. They don't need to coerce or manipulate. And they're willing to allow things to unfold in their due course and They build capability in people rather than just demanding short-term results. They avoid time-wasting activities like entrenchment and organizational gamesmanship. Most of all, they have fun. Twice-round leaders know how to influence, and they lead by example and build consensus. You see, twice-round leaders are interested in the potential of the organization and its people, and they see the world through the eyes of those they lead. And they relate to the excitement and thrill that others experience. They realize that, as Mac Anderson said, people are like sticks of dynamite. The power's on the inside, but nothing happens until the fuse gets lit. So they light the fires inside their people and help people feel powerful rather than helpless. Twice-round leaders lead from the heart. So let's say a while back, you started a business and this start wasn't what you expected. And now you've paused for a while. You maybe even have lost a bit of confidence and you wonder if you can begin again. Think about all the advantages that are yours this time around. You know the product you sell better than when you started. You've developed skills you didn't have before. You've made relationships with those who can coach you and you're more mature so imagine if you started again just as if it was day one with the same goals, outlook, hope, and energy that you started with the first time, but this time armed with experience. Begin again with new eyes. Think of yourself as a new business owner and builder. What would you do? Now, you may think this doesn't work, but it does. Years ago, I was working with an organization in Taiwan and we'd grown a business to over a hundred million dollars in annual sales, but it had paused. So we had a meeting with the senior managers and it was a different kind of meeting. I asked the question, if you were going to build a business in this industry with these products today, if you were going to start that new business today, what would you do? And for about an hour, we listed all the ideal elements of our new business. There was energy and curiosity, and we made this terrific list. And when we were done, I said, okay, that's the business we're going to rebuild. And we made a game plan to take our business in its current state and change it to the new business that we had designed. It changed everything, and our business grew like never before. And you can apply this to other areas of your life. Let's say you have a teenage son or daughter and you didn't do so well the first time around as a parent. Make a list of all the things you would do as a parent if you could do it again. Think about what kind of relationship you want. Describe the details of how you you want it to look and let that become your game plan. Do that. Even if it seems silly, walk that new path. Be twice born. And I promise you, you will be a different better parent. Sometimes in doing this, you end up doing the opposite of what you did, and that's okay. There's power in the opposite. In one of the more famous episodes of Seinfeld, George Costanza is convinced his judgment is permanently flawed. He believes his instincts are always wrong. One day he says to Jerry Seinfeld, it became very clear sitting to me out there today that every decision I've made in my entire life has been wrong. My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. Every instinct I have in every aspect of life, be it something to wear, something to eat, it's all been wrong. So George decides to do the opposite of whatever he would naturally do. He goes into the diner and instead of ordering his usual item off the menu, he pauses, thinks, and orders the exact opposite. When his food is delivered, he notices a beautiful woman looking his way. His normal reaction would be not to talk to her because he's afraid, but instead he does the opposite. He talks to her and she noticed him because his out of the ordinary lunch order was the same as hers. He asks her out and she agrees. And this begins a spree of fortuitous events each time he chooses the opposite of what his instincts told him to do. Sometimes when things aren't going like you want, follow George's example and choose the opposite. If you've been leading or parenting by being the know-it-all, choose the opposite. If you've been lecturing too much, choose the opposite. Empower, engage, and let others arrive at their own conclusion. You see, there's power in starting again and going back to year one in being a rookie again. When Liz Wiseman graduated from college and started her career at Oracle, It wasn't long before she was thrust into the role of leading Oracle University. It was something for which she was exceptionally underqualified. Not only was she underqualified, but she was young, so she looked underqualified. One day, her boss introduced her in in an executive meeting and said, This is Liz. She runs Oracle University. To which one executive, Bob, said, Oh yeah, Liz, she isn't particularly qualified for her job. To which Liz responded, hey, Bob, who wants a job that they're qualified for? There would be nothing to learn. At Oracle, she noticed that the things they trained on were mostly irrelevant after five years. And this got her thinking about the power of those who are just rookies. So after she left Oracle, Liz and her research team went to work and studied about 400 different work scenarios, looking at how people with experience approached a particular task and how people without experience approached the same task. They found some really interesting things. They found that with experience, obviously, comes a lot of virtues and assets, but with experience also comes a number of blind spots. They studied how people without experience approach things. You see, when we're operating without experience, there are some obvious downsides. No one wants a rookie surgeon or rookie dentist. And I've been to a lot of first-year dance recitals and band concerts. Trust me, rookies in this category are not the best. But when we're inexperienced at something, when we're in this rookie space, when we're doing something really hard and really important, and when we're doing it for the very first time, Liz and her team found we operate in some really interesting ways. They found that rookies operate unencumbered by knowledge, so they see more possibilities and explore more. They lack know-how, so they have to go out and get it. And in that space in which they lack know-how, magical things happen. In that rookie space, we ask better questions. We're more alert. We listen more. We value feedback. We seek feedback. And when we're operating without a lot of expertise, we actually tend to bring in more expertise because we consult with so many people and we mobilize the expertise of others. Liz found that rookies are fast. They tend to outperform people in both innovation and speed. Rookies are scrappy. They improvise, are lean and agile, and are really resourceful. They also found something else in their research. They surveyed more than 1,000 people and asked two questions. How challenged are you in your work and how satisfied are you in your work? And they found an interesting correlation. As challenge levels went up, so did satisfaction. Could it be that challenges seem to bring out the best in us? Liz concluded that when we are in our rookie zone, we do our best work because in that zone, we're propelled to do our best work. And sometimes we don't like it. We can't stand to be in this state of tension in which the size of the task is bigger than our capability, and it pushes us and propels us forward. So with all these benefits of being in the rookie zone, how do you enter the rookie zone when you're not a rookie? Well, here's a few suggestions. Ask more questions. Questions are powerful tools to teach others but also to teach yourself. For example, if you're seeking to better your skills as a parent, ask yourself questions. What could I do today to be more affirming? Or how do I learn to use positive questions to help my children think for themselves? As a CEO of a large organization, I've learned that by asking questions, people find the answers. And in finding the answers, they discover for themselves and own what they discover. Next, to enter the rookie zone, admit what you don't know. When you do, you open up yourself to help, to discovery and teamwork. Beginning again, being twice born has a lot to do with admitting what you don't know. And there's nothing worse than being with or being a person who thinks they know when, in fact, they haven't done their homework. Next, throw away your notes. If you're building a business that you've built for a long time, it may be helpful to throw out your way of doing things and ask, if I were starting again, what would I do different? Last, to enter the rookie zone, learn to see the genius in others. You see, when you're a rookie, you value others who create new ways of doing things. And if you've lost your energy, maybe you need some new genius. Maybe you need to see the genius in others. You know, recently, I went to my 40th high school reunion. It was so much fun to see friends from my childhood 40 years later. It was a master class on how life takes you, tosses you around, and gives you perspective. Here's what I learned. Everyone has challenges. Death in the family, accidents, autism, children with struggles, divorce, pain, and mixed into that, a lot of joy. I learned that love lasts. Friendships last, and hairlines don't last, and youth doesn't last. But I would trade youth for perspective any day. I learned that we're all doing our best to make the most of life that we can. And if we're lucky, we get to open our eyes to the good and the bad. And if we're lucky, we get a do-over or two. When Joni was a young girl growing up in Saskatchewan, Canada, she loved music. And when her parents wouldn't let her play the guitar, she learned to play the ukulele. Soon, her parents changed their view, and Joni taught herself to play the guitar. But because she had contracted polio when she was younger, it had weakened her left hand, so she devised alternative ways to play chords and to compensate for her weakness in her hand. At age 20, she dropped out of school and played gigs as a folk musician. She battled through years of playing in church basements and YMCA meeting halls and living from paycheck to paycheck. She got pregnant by an ex-boyfriend. She wrote, he left me three months pregnant in an attic room with no money and winter coming on and only a fireplace for heat. She eventually placed the baby up for adoption. When she was playing one night years later in a club in Coconut Grove, California, David Crosby walked in and was immediately struck by her ability. She followed him to Los Angeles and her career changed for the better. She was flying one day on an airplane, reading a book in which the author was also up in a plane. He was on his way to Africa and he looks down and sees the clouds and writes about them. She said, I put down the book, looked out the window and saw the clouds too. And I immediately started writing a song. And that song would win her awards, bring her fame, and literally change her life. The song, it's called Both Sides Now. And in that song, she sings about the clouds and how she's seen the clouds from both sides now. Above the clouds in an airplane where they look like angels' hair, and below the clouds where they rain and block the sun. In the last verse, she sings, I've looked at life from both sides now, from win and lose and still somehow. It's life's illusions I recall, and I really don't know life at all. Joni Mitchell was saying she's seen the good and bad of life, from a poor, polio-stricken girl to a single mother who made the decision to give her baby up for adoption to a now-famous musician. She admits... She still doesn't know life at all. Many of us have seen life from both sides now. And it's that perspective that can empower us when we begin again. Let me give you a simple example of how we can begin again as parents. I've learned the best time to teach as a parent is not when it's teaching time. And the worst time to teach is when it is teaching time. Let me explain. Let's say your teenage son comes home after the agreed upon time one night. You've been waiting up and you're tired. He knows you're going to be waiting up for him and you're going to be upset. And you're thinking it's time to teach him a lesson. It's the wrong time. I've learned that trust at that time is not in the room. So when is the right time to teach? When you're driving down the road together on your way to the golf course. Tell him what you've learned in life. Tell him how important morality and obedience is to you. Tell him why you feel that way. Let him hear from you the good things that come in life from making good choices. Talk about how proud you are that he often chooses the right. Tell him a story from your youth. Remember, this is a dialogue. It starts with a question or two, and then you get the opportunity to share what you've learned. Another perfect time to teach is when your children come home on time. We as parents often notice when our children come home late, but do we ever thank them when they come home on time? I've learned some of the best discussions in life with teenagers happen at midnight. If parents are relaxed and willing to talk, a teenager will go on and on talking for hours. You'll lose sleep, but you'll gain a friend. Think about it. If your teenager has a really great talk with you when they come home on time, will they come home on time more often? You bet. I know a mother who bakes hot chocolate chip cookies and has them out of the oven at midnight when her son is supposed to be home. He walks in the door, gets a cookie, and she just sits calmly and asks him how he's doing. Then she sits back and lets him talk. Leading with a dialogue or even cookies works. Those are the kinds of things twice-round parents know and do. And it's no different at work. I've learned the best time to teach your team is not in a crisis. The best time to teach is when you can affirm, not correct. Each month, I ask department heads to bring their teams and sit down for a scorecard meeting. We call them scorecard meetings, but to myself, I call them affirmation meetings. I do that to remind myself that my job is to affirm, not direct. And in these meetings, they report their progress towards their goals, brag on their accomplishments for the month, and tell me what they're going to do next month to improve. And I've learned in this session, I don't talk very much. You see, our first tendency is to teach and expound and, you know, share our vast knowledge. You may be the same. If so, resist that temptation. Let them talk. Ask them affirmative questions like, what did you learn when you made those changes? Tell them what you love about what they did and use those exact words. Let me tell you what I love about what you did. In my experience, as they talk about what went wrong and what went right, they will reach the same conclusion that you would reach and they did it on their own. Can you see the power of being twice born as a parent, as a leader? So try, in your life, relationships, work, and when you're trying to improve yourself, Start again, but this time with more understanding. In the 1993 film Groundhog Day, Phil Connors, played by actor Bill Murray, is a self-centered weatherman who gets stuck living the same day over and over again. The day he relives repeatedly is Groundhog Day. At first, he's confused. But then, with no one else aware that he's reliving and repeating the same day, he begins to venture out and take unnecessary risks. He gorges on high-calorie foods. He drives at high speed and robs the local bank, knowing there are no consequences for his actions because he'll just wake up the next day and start over again. In one memorable scene, Connors kidnaps the groundhog, jumps into a truck, and leads the local police in a high-speed chase, ending with the truck, Connors, groundhog and all, flying over a cliff to a fiery death. Even this doesn't keep Connors from waking up again on Groundhog Day. Now, Connors repeatedly tries with no success to capture the affection of Rita, a television producer, finding no happiness in his self-centered way of life or thinking. Connors finally explains his situation to Rita, who suggests that he uses these repeated days, this time, to improve himself. So Connors takes her advice. He makes a change he begins to take positive action. In his mind's eye, he sees himself in a new way. He starts helping others, rescuing town members from potential accidents, which he's foreseen, improving his own talents. He learns to play the piano, speak French, and recite classic French poetry. Each day, he begins anew, born again, with the knowledge that he has from the day before. And during these never-ending days, he also gets to know Rita and falls in love with who she is rather than how she looks. Each day he wakes up a new man, and little by little, he's transformed. He finds beauty in other people and the world around him. He learns what true happiness is, and as a result, Rita can't help but be attracted to Phil because inside he's become truly attractive. When he gains her love, he is finally released from the curse and wakes up on the day after Groundhog Day. He breaks the cycle, moves on, and enters into a new day of life. Like Phil Connors, we can be twice born, each day beginning again with our rookie selves and empowered perspective. So remember, New Orleans and the statue rebirth. If you're struggling with your day, your habits, business, or anything else, imagine you're at day one, And if you were to start again, what would you do? Then do that. And Remember, rookies are smarter because they ask questions, they listen, they admit what they don't know, and they use the genius of others. And remember, you've looked at life and things and yourself from both sides now, from win and lose, and now you know how to choose the better part. It's Groundhog Day. You can start again but this time better. Thanks for being here today and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.